So, my wonderful title is Death is the Path to Life's Opportunities, Part 2. And uh, last week, I asked us the question, have we truly seized God's opportunities in the year of opportunity? Uh, and, and remember, when Pastor Jim first gave us this theme message a year ago, uh, for 2009, a year of opportunity, he said the word opportunity comes from the word, it has the word, the Latin root port in it, it comes from the, you know, a, a sailor's port on the ocean, and it conjures up the image of sailors being prepared for just that very right moment when the tide comes in, and they've got to be all ready to go, and right when it's in, at just the right moment, they have to launch the boat, and if they're not ready for it, if they're not prepared, they miss the opportunity. So, that word opportunity, it's filled with risk and danger, but also excitement and, uh, and, 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 uh, you know, people who like adrenaline rushes and thrills, it, it, that word opportunity is filled with that, that meaning. And the question, one of the questions I asked last week is, are we prepared? Are we like those sailors who are prepared to launch, to seize the opportunity when it, it finally comes? Uh, and, and not only are we prepared, but have we seized or have we been seizing God's opportunities? Well, then last week I also asked, uh, what if, though, what if 2009 didn't feel so much like a year of opportunity? What if it felt like a year of pain? Uh, there are many in this room I know firsthand who have experienced the very worst trials of their entire lives in 2009. Some of the very worst trials. And, and there's probably many of you I, I don't know about whose trials I'm, I'm not even aware of. And, uh, and maybe 2009 uh, wasn't a year like that for you. That is great. Uh, but for, for many of us, it was a year of great pain and, and great trials. And so, you know, that brings up the question, was, was Pastor Jim's theme message, was it, was it prophetic? Or, or was it, you know, some kind of sick, cruel joke? Year of opportunity, you know. Uh, and so, you know, I just want to review really quickly. We want to get the PowerPoint up here. Uh, um, one of the things I said last week was that there is a difference between our interpretation of trials and God's interpretation. And primary example I brought up was the example of the Israelites in the wilderness after they'd just been delivered from slavery in Egypt. They'd just seen God part the Red Sea and uh, had come through. And just a few days afterwards, they were starting to feel some hunger in their bellies, and they said this, But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. They interpreted this experience as a death sentence. Isn't that often true of how we react sometimes during our trials? We interpret it as a death sentence for us. But God's interpretation was this. In Deuteronomy, he says through Moses, or Moses is saying of God, he humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna. And then there was an even deeper purpose behind, behind that, to teach you 
that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Very different interpretations of the very same experience. You see, God's interpretation is different because he is intent on transforming the heart, using the trial itself to transform the heart. He, Just like with the Israelites, in us he wants to work into us total dependence and humility and not just to lay us low and to beat us bloody. That's not God's intention. It's for an even greater intention so that we could feast on the real nourishment, the real true food. It's kind of like how sometimes... Uh, you know, uh, candy tastes so good to a to a to a baby, to a little kid, and uh, they don't really believe it that um, other kinds of food would actually be more nourishing to their whole body and have better, longer-term effects uh, that would strengthen and nourish their their whole body. And uh, so it's kind of like <clears throat> uh, you got to wean them off the sugar and the candy. To uh, I guess that's not true of little. Ch- it's all of us. Okay. Um, uh, to cultivate a taste for what's really going to bring you health and well-being. So, and so last week I said that the the difference, uh, is, faith makes the difference between the two interpretations. Uh, you know, we need faith in the midst of trials that God, God's character, His intention is good. Instead of assassinating his character, assigning him evil motives, malicious motives, saying, you're trying to kill us, this is a death sentence, we need faith that his character is good in the midst of the trials. And we need faith to, uh, to see the trial as a transformation process. We need faith that the trial is a transformation process versus a death sentence. The second thing I I concluded last week was that the cross is the ultimate example of how God hides his beauty behind the ugliness of trials. You know, um, I remember when I, uh, this is several years ago, uh, totally in a work situation, not related to anybody here, but I was going through it at the time, it was the most difficult trial of my life, and uh, it had, it involved injustice, there was, um, uh, there were lies, there was, anyway, it was, it was an awful, awful trial, and I just saw it unfolding before me, and there was absolutely nothing I could do about it, there was absolutely nothing anybody could do about, do about it, and the one thing that gave me consolation was remembering, oh wait, that's right, God went through this. God went through this himself. He, and in fact, what he went through was even a deeper level. He went through the unjust rejection, uh, unjust betrayal, and, and unjust brutality. And, uh, and, and so, so when we're bewildered and, and we're asking, like Mary and Martha were asking about their brother Lazarus, you know, God, what, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Or, God, why... Why, did, why are you letting this happen? Or why are you allowing this? Or God, I don't, I don't get this. This doesn't make any sense. In the midst of that insanity, the cross that Jesus went through 
brings sanity, the, the, the cross. And so, so uh, I, I, I want to encourage all of us, I want to encourage everyone in this room, when you're bewildered in the midst of, of trials, go to the cross. Meditate on the cross. Think of what was lost, what happened, the terrible things that happened on the cross, and that will bring the deepest comfort and consolation possible. And, uh, and so, lastly, I, I concluded this with this horrible title, Death is the Path to Life's Opportunities. So, Nancy, I, the Holy Spirit was coordinating something there, because that's basically what you just what you just told us. Well, um, and, and, and I do I do want to encourage you. you know, it's un, unlike any other philosophy, any other religion, any other belief system, uh, Christianity has in it the, the the greatest ability to comfort and strengthen those who are going through trials because. It's in the cross we see an example of how God hides his greatest beauty, his, his unconditional love, his steadfast love. He hides it behind the ugliness of trials and the ugliness of difficulties. So, you know, a question I have for us is, are we cooperating with God as he's trying to reveal his opportunities are we cooperating with God? Or, like the Israelites in the desert, are we fighting him every single step of the way? If you read through that story of the Israelites, they were fighting him every single step of the way. All the things he was trying to do on his agenda, for, on their behalf, they misinterpreted all of it, and they were fighting him every step of the way. So which, where are we? Are we cooperating with what God's trying to do in us and through us, with his opportunity, or are we fighting him. So this morning, I um, want to start with this question, how, just how do we cooperate with God? Just how do we cooperate with God? And we're going to have a very interactive service today. So, and in front of you, even if you didn't bring your own Bible, that's fine. In front of you, there is a, a Bible, and I'd like everyone to pull it out or share it with the person next to you. There's more than enough in the room. And if you could turn with me to the book of Ephesians, Paul's letter to the Ephesians. It's the last sort of uh, quarter of the, of the Bible. And book of Ephesians, chapter 5. I was debating whether or not to put these verses up on the, the PowerPoint, but you know, I... I, we've noticed a trend that sometimes when we put everything up on the PowerPoint, you know, the slobber effect in the congregation kind of gets stronger. You know, people just sort of become a little more passive, a little more slobbery. So, um, uh, so, so we're going to be a little more interactive, like the good old days, before PowerPoint. So Ephesians chapter 5, verses 14 through 20. This, this is the passage that Pastor Jim used a year ago when he introduced the year of opportunity to us. When he said, here's the year of opportunity, he took that very word from the NIV translation uh, of Ephesians 5, verses 14 through 20. So let's read through this together. 
one could find, verse 14 in chapter 5 of Ephesians. This is what Paul writes. For it is light that makes everything visible. This is why it is said, Wake up, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Be very careful, then, how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. Sing and make music in your hearts to the Lord. Always giving thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, from this passage a year ago, Pastor Jim gave us a fourfold prescription for how to cooperate with God in order to see his opportunities and also in order to seize his opportunities. To see and, and then seize his opportunities. There's a, there's a fourfold prescription right from this text. Number one, in uh, verse uh, 14, is be alert. Be alert. Alert. That's the first prescription uh, from this. Be alert. Now, I want to talk about this alertness thing, okay? My uh, brother for Christmas gave us a little, um, a little, uh, one of the, a little magnet that goes on the refrigerator, and this is what it says <clears throat> Drink coffee, do stupid things, uh, do stupid things faster and with more energy. All right, I've become kind of a coffee addict in recent years. And uh, my brother, knowing this, uh, gave us this, this funny little, little placard. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's very funny. But you know what? The reason why I put this up here uh, was not just a joke relief from my, my boring message. But the real reason was, <clears throat> was actually, this is how some Christians actually think of the whole idea of spiritual alertness. They, they actually almost treat it like a caffeine high. And, uh, and, and maybe you've, you've known some Christians like this, and I'm, of course nobody in this room has ever been like this. But there's sort of a frenzied kind of hypervigilance we can work ourselves up into. This is, a, this is especially, unfortunately, this afflicts Christians who uh, want to be really serious about their faith, which is... Absolutely fabulous to have as many Christians as possible who want to be serious about their faith. But, but sometimes this mentality, that those Christians are prone to kind of whipping themselves up into kind of this hyper-vigilant frenzy. And sort of the, the, the goal of doing that is they're always trying to, they think they're always trying to stay one step ahead of the devil's next move. And they, they think that they can almost, you know, apprehend what Satan's going to do next and with their own alertness, they're, they're going to you know, prevent some great evil or, or even the extreme cases, people think they're going to figure out when Jesus is coming back if they're just <laughs> hyper enough about it. Um, well, the result of that is sleeplessness, irritability, being burned out, being totally unproductive for the kingdom of God. And these Christians don't exude very much love, joy, or peace in their lives. And, and I've had some seasons in my life 
where I've been like this. So I've, I'm speaking from personal experience. It's the same, the same thing you get from a caffeine high, uh, to, uh, having too much caffeine over an extended period of time, you get from this kind of false, uh, frenzied, hyper-spiritual vigilance that some Christians uh, get into. This is exactly opposite of the biblical definition of uh, alertness. Um, Jesus actually said in Luke 17, verse 20, he said, the kingdom of God does not come with your careful observation. The kingdom of, Luke 17, 20, the kingdom of God doesn't come from your careful observation. So you being sort of trying to stay one step ahead of the devil and be super hyper alert uh, in, in, a, in a fleshly way, that's, that's not the alertness that is being talked about in the Bible. It's not what Paul's writing about. It's not what Jesus talked about. Um, and, you know, that anxiety, that, that really comes out of this anxiety and this, this fear God's not really in control. And uh, as it says in Psalm 37, it says, don't fret, it tends only to evil. Fretting tends only to evil. Okay? So, so what is the alertness the Bible is talking about. What, what was Paul writing about? What, did, what was Jesus talking about when he said, you know, be alert? It's, it's talking about a, a spiritual awakeness in which we're simply doing God's will every day consistently and perseveringly. It doesn't have to have big bright lights and fireworks. It's just the simple daily, day in, day out, following the Lord, faithfully doing what God wants us to do all the way to the end. Not knowing if Jesus is coming back this afternoon, if, he's, if it's going to be another thousand years. I don't know. Nobody knows. But what, when, when God talks about us being alert, it's talking about just faithfully doing the simple, basic Christian life that... He wants us to do. Here's a quote out of the middle of um, the most uh, famous text on this. This is, this is uh, Jesus' famous sermon about the, the end times, the last days. And in the middle of that, he says, Who then is the faithful and wise servant whom the master has put in charge of the servants of his household to give them their food at the proper time? It will be good for the ser- that servant whose master finds him doing so when he returns. So when Jesus returns, he's not expecting us to be dashing around in a frenzy like, ah, 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 when's Jesus coming back? <clears throat> no, he, he's, he's going to come back. It's going to be a surprise for all of us. And when he comes back, what he's looking for is those servants who are just simply doing, the, the faithfully doing the simple things he's called us to do. Okay, that's alertness. I hope that takes away some of the fear and worry for you, because fear and worry have nothing to do with the alertness God is calling us to. The second prescription from Ephesians 5, if you want to look at um, verses 15 through 17 again, verses 15 through 17, it says, Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. 
<clears throat> be wise. Be wise is the second prescription for this. The second prescription. Now, that comes from verse 15. Verse 16 and 17 unpack what it means to be wise. Okay? Doesn't mean getting a higher degree. Necessarily, God could use that, but it's not necessarily what it means. Uh, certainly didn't have higher degrees back in Paul's day, so he wasn't referring to that. <clears throat> um, okay, first of all, it, it does mean making the most of every opportunity. That's where Pastor Jim got this word from the NIV translation of this, the year of opportunity. It does mean making the most of opportunity. Now, some of you with older translations or more literal translations, you'll notice that that phrase, make the most of every opportunity, literally is redeem the times. Redeem the times. What does it mean to redeem? It means to buy back, buy, buy something back. So to redeem the time means to buy back or purchase back this present evil age the, 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 from the dark, the, the ways that the darkness of this present evil age have destroyed things, we buy that back with our right living, with our obedient behavior. That obedient, right living, that is what rescues the times from the darkness. That's what rescues the time from the darkness. <clears throat> There's a second thing this passage says about being wise, and that is Understand what the Lord's will is. Understand what the Lord's will is. Now, this is one of those things, you know, as as um, as a church with uh, Pentecostal roots, and you know, we really believe in the in the the truth that God is very present with us. Uh, we can experience Him daily. We can experience Him directly. That is that is so good. That emphasis our church has is, is so good. But some people have taken this idea of trying to understand what the Lord's will is to mean um, tr trying to figure out every single step you're supposed to take every day, you know, from big decisions like who am I supposed to marry, uh, what job am I supposed to have, to, um, you know, little things like should I put on uh, black socks or white socks today, or should I put on this tie or that tie. But... That's not what Paul's talking about here. When he says, understand what the Lord's will is, he's talking about figuring out and practicing what pleases God. He's talking about the lifestyle that pleases God. That's, that's what Paul's talking about here. He's, he's talking about what pleases God. And, and you know, the, the core of that, finding out what pleases God, finding out what the Lord's will is, is correctly defining the word, correctly defining what the opportunity actually is. Now, fortunately, uh, you, you, said the, you said the hard stuff, Nancy, so I, I, don't, I, I just have to say Nancy said it first. Um, but it, it's really true. Uh, when we say opportunity, an incorrect misinterpretation of that phrase is to assume that it, it for sure means a great business opportunity, 
uh, opportunity to make a financial deal, uh, opportunity to make some quick money, an opportunity for a new life adventure. Now, all those things may happen. And maybe 2009 was a year like that for, for some of us with really cool, wonderful things happening. Okay, And that's from God, too. That definitely is from God. But the year of opportunity is not primarily about having those financial breakthroughs. Uh, it's not primarily about the new job. It's not primarily about the new life adventure. They might happen. But if, if you lock into that as the definition of opportunity, if you think that's what it is, you're setting yourself up for disappointment and, worse of all, you're setting yourself up for potentially a very long period of bitterness. Okay? So it's really important to get this right, to get this definition right. Now that I've told you what it doesn't mean, let's look at Scripture for what it does mean. Uh, if you remember, last week I referenced the story of Lazarus rising from the dead. Pastor Jim, a year ago, spent a lot of time talking about Lazarus for the year of opportunity. And, and if you remember, Jesus said this really harsh thing. He said, I'm glad I wasn't there when Lazarus was sick and dying. Okay? And you're like, what? Jesus was glad? Well, if, if, if uh, you turn to John chapter 11, John chapter 11, where this is, the story is, <clears throat> Uh, let's find out what Jesus thought the opportunity was. That's probably what Jesus thinks, what Jesus says, pretty right on the mark about what, <laughs> what God's uh, definition is of opportunity. Uh, if everyone could read verse 40 to themselves, chapter 11 of John, verse 40, says what Jesus believed was the opportunity in Lazarus' death. This is what Jesus saw as the opportunity in Lazarus' death. It's pretty mind-blowing. Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So for Jesus, the opportunity that was better than preventing Lazarus' death, that was better than sparing Mary and Martha and all their family and friends from the deep grief, four-day-long grief of seeing, Jesus, or seeing Lazarus die and stay dead for, for four days... The thing that was even greater in Jesus' mind was the glory of God. It was an opportunity to see the glory of God. So the, the, the first thing here, the first way to define the opportunity is it's an opportunity for God's greater glory. Now some of you might be asking, well, okay, where do I fit into that? What about me? How can this be a year of opportunity if it's just all about God's glory? Well, one thing I want to remind us of is that seeing God's glory 
is our greatest good. Getting a sight, catching a glimpse of the most beautiful, the most infinitely worthy and valuable thing in the universe, God's glory, actually is our highest and best good. It's better than all the other good things that could happen to you. All the paid-for vacations and cruises and financial windfalls and perfect health that you could ever possibly enjoy, catching a glimpse of God's glory is better than that. It is better. It is our highest good. The second part of this definition of rightly defining opportunity I'm going to just put this one up here for you. Um, I'm going to look at this for a second. Galatians 2, verse 20. Jesus said, or Paul writes in another of his letters, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul saw opportunity in how God changes us. He saw the way that God transforms us as one of the greatest opportunities possible. God puts to death the old, self-serving, self-promoting, self-aggrandizing, self-absorbed nature. He puts that to death and resurrects and and gives birth to a new nature that likes to serve God, that loves to promote God and glorify God and worship God, where it's an enjoyment to lift God up and honor his name. God causes that in us. So he puts to death this old Andrew, and he... And he resurrects and gives birth to this new Andrew that loves to obey God, that's joyful about trusting God and walking with him. This change, this transformation, is the opportunity. And, and you, know what, you know what, guys? This change is one of our highest goods ever. It's one of the most important things we can go through because the unchanged nature can't enjoy God. The unchanged nature is actually repelled by God. It actually finds God and his glory to be a a disgusting smell. That's the unchanged nature. But the changed nature is attracted to God, likes God, loves God, enjoys God, enjoys obeying him, enjoys his glory. It's just that this change happens slowly over time through a thousand and one different trials. Some are very severe and, and overwhelming. Some are very or appear minor, but they put the old nature to death nevertheless, and they allow the breathing space for the new nature. And uh, you guys, I, I don't want to minimize our trials. I, I, I realize the danger of this is you could walk out of this and like, that Andrew is so insensitive. He's like, doesn't care about my trials. He doesn't realize how hard... I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm, he's, okay, even that, I realized. Right, that was flippant. I'm sorry. <clears throat> I, I don't want to minimize the trials. 
we've gone through this year or, or in years past. But I, I want us to think, uh, if, even if for a moment, just kind of force our heads to look up out of our trials for just a moment. And remember, Paul wrote that in, in uh, he wrote in Romans chapter eight that he he doesn't think it's worth comparing our trials with the glory that is to be revealed. That they're they're so incomparable that when we are standing with God in glory, our trials are going to be this look like, at that time, in, in God's reality, it's going to look like a little feather on the scale. And the weight of glory will be so, so heavy that our trials will appear as nothing in comparison. And, and we, in the meantime, while we're waiting for that, we can actually live in, by faith, that that's actually the case, that, that that's actually the truth. And we can get this foretaste of the joy of heaven in our spirit uh, as, we, as we believe that by faith. I, and, and it can even help us get through trials. Uh, look at how Jesus got through trials. Um, this, is, this, is, this is a quote from Jesus. He says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. He was talking about the cross. He knew the cross was coming. He'd been predicting it. He was telling uh, his disciples this. They didn't get it, but he was telling them anyway. He says, Father, save me from this hour? No. It was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Glorify your name. By, by focusing on the purpose of the trial, by focusing on the purpose... Jesus was able to face the trial. Okay? And the same is true for us. We are able to face the trial and we will be transformed from our self-centered existence to a God-centered existence. We'll be transformed. So, the two big opportunities that we need to correctly define are an opportunity for the glorification of God and an opportunity for our own change into someone who likes God's glory and enjoys it. Okay, these last two points are much shorter, I promise. That was my longest point. Um, Pastor Jim gave us a third prescription, and that was be filled. And if you look at the verse here, uh, it's contrasting being filled with being drunk. Okay, it says don't be drunk, or don't get drunk, but be, which leads to debauchery, but be filled. Now, this is important to understand because especially a church like ours, you know, we, we, we love it. We love to see when the Holy Spirit comes on somebody in great power and there's, they're kind of like, you know, smacked down to the ground and, and, and they look almost like they're drunk. They're sort of staggering around. You know, we, we love that. That's cool. And, and, and God, God does touch us in those powerful, overwhelming ways. But actually, this verse isn't talking about that experience. This, this verse, Paul here, is using a verb, uh, probably be better translated, be continually filled. So he's not talking about the single experience when the Holy Spirit just like overwhelms us and it looks kind of like we're staggering drunk. That, that's not what the contrast is about. Um, he, he's, basically, the contrast is drunkenness. If you look at the whole passage here, Drunkenness is one form of spiritual sleepiness. Drunkenness keeps us spiritually sleepy. So Paul isn't contrasting the picture of, 
you know, someone drunk in the spirit and someone drunk in, uh, you know, drunk from wine. He's contrasting the spiritual sleepiness with the, if, if you look back up at the top of the chapter, uh, chapter 5, verse 1, Paul says this, uh, this sort of blanket statement for the whole chapter. He says, be imitators of God, therefore, as dearly loved children, and live a life of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. So this idea of being filled with the Spirit, being continually filled with the Spirit, is just uh, another way of Paul saying, uh, live this life of love. Okay? Um, the last prescription Pastor Jim gave us a year ago, oh, here we go. I already wrote that up there. All right. Um, is be thankful. Now, I'm almost done, so I know, and I, this has been a longer than usual sermon, so uh, just preparing you for Pastor Jim's sermon next week. Um, uh, um, I know it'd be easy to tune me out here, and not only because it's long, but also because this is, you know, we're we're always told day one of being a Christian, you know, be thankful. And I have to admit, I've said, you know, to my kids when they start grumbling and whining, I just say, just count your blessings, kid. You know, it's kind of a way to like, just stop whining. I can't stand it. You know, like, just count your blessings, honey. You know, I I, uh, I sometimes just to say count your blessings can be really dismissive, can be really invalidating. Um, I, I'm, not, I'm not trying to do that. Uh, but let, let me ask you this. When was the last time you seriously sat down and listed the ways in which the Lord has showered you with blessings? Not, not, not only the big stuff. You know, you got a roof over your head. Your mouth is—you're actually not starving to death. Um, I mean, thank him for that too. But start going through the details. Uh, when was the last time you did that? I, this, doing this has literally rescued me from the brink of despair a number of times. Some of my very worst days ever. I've just carved out some time and said, "Okay," and I've started listing what the Lord has done for me lately. And I end up with, like, a really long list. And I, I tell you, this completely changes your heart. This completely gets you in the right mode for being able to see the Lord's opportunities. Uh, not doing this, staying ungrateful, staying um, complaining, um, staying locked in on your trials, that just keeps us blinded to the, the opportunities God's given us and he's going to give us. So, you know what? And guess what? This works no matter how hard your life is. I, I, I guarantee it. I mean, some people are going to, you know, I'm probably get some calls and some emails and, you know, like, yeah, Andrew, you do not know how hard my life is. And I, I, I'm not, once again, I'm not trying to minimize your trials. What I'm saying is, eat, no matter how hard your life is, listing out the Lord's blessings is one of the most important helpful things you could ever do. Now, and then I, I want to finally at, close with this, this question for us. When was the last time you listed the ways that God has showered this church with favor? When, when, when was the last time you, you did that? Now, I, I started thinking about this 
And the list got so long that I, I, I mean, there, there's no way I could even begin to scratch the surface. I, I, I do, I, but you know what? What it did was it put put me in this state of awe. Um, there's a couple examples. Um, last spring, Norm Anderson, he's our worship leader today. He and I were talking about the unusual grace God has on this church for worship. Did you know that this church has not experienced something that almost every evangelical church in North America has experienced, probably all over the world, is worship wars. People actually fighting over, is it this song or is it that song? That's not my style. I don't like that. You're not spiritual because you're not doing enough of these songs. This church hasn't experienced anything like that in these last 20 years or so. There is such an incredible unity in this church over worship. And, and, and Norm and I were, were talking about it, and, and at the end, I remember we were both thinking, thinking like, oh my goodness, I'm so humbled by that unique grace of God that there hasn't been worship wars, but in fact, instead we've had these incredibly spiritual, spirit-led worship leaders who have unbelievable talent. I'm not a musician, and even I recognize the incredible talent there, who are so humble, so God-centered, so yearning to exalt the Lord. I mean, it just blows me away. I've been thinking about our children's ministry. You know, we, my wife and I visited a friend, a friend of ours was preaching at another, another church last night. We went and visited, and we put our kids in the, in the children's ministry. It was great. But so, so much of the attitude in so many churches, let's just babysit these kids for a little while. Let's kind of keep them entertained. Did you know at this church, these children from the littlest ones all the way up, they're actually getting ministered to. They're getting ministered to in the spirit. They are, they, they are actually, my kids are coming home. They're not just learning little cute little Bible facts. They are drawing closer to the Lord because of the children's ministry and the children's ministers. It is... It, this doesn't happen in every church, you guys. I, um, I, I could just go on and on. I, I, don't, I mean, I've, I've been looking at the... Um, you know, a little bit at the, the Lifeline paper. I, I have to admit, I don't read it every single... all of it every single month because it's like so big. Did, did you know usually only mega churches with thousands of people print that out and they have, they have like staff that do that, like paid staff who do that. Like little churches like ours don't print out great, big, beautiful, uh, highly well done uh, um, newspapers like that, like our lifeline. The lay leadership in this church, I, every time, uh, you guys, if you've been around this church any length of time, you know who Dale Van Steenis is. He comes once a year, ministers very powerfully among us. Every time he leaves, he's like, he says to Pastor Jim, Pastor Carl, you know, like, you guys, you guys are so unique. You have such incredible lay leadership, volunteers who are willing to bear the burden of, of ministry and bless one another. It's just, it's unbelievable. I, you guys, <clears throat> our young people in this, in this church, did, you know, so, so, many, so many churches, the model of youth ministry is, well, let's just keep them from, I don't know, doing really bad drugs for a couple hours on Sunday or Wednesday or something and, 
And then maybe when they're 25 or 30, maybe then they'll repent, you know. Did you know in this church, it's the young people who are ministering? They're, they're ministering. They're not, they're not sitting around waiting to get through life, you know, and, and, and have fun, and then maybe 20, 30, when they're almost dead, then they'll repent. <clears throat> we have young people who are ministering. Did you know it was our youngest young people, um, uh, Peace and Yagaya, Callie Mellon, some others, who at uh, Rock the River out, outreach last summer... It was our youngest young people, our youngest youth, who led people to Christ. That, that's amazing. Um, do, you, do you guys realize how unusual it is that we have this multi-ethnic church? There, um, there are only, in, in all the Twin Cities, an incredibly diverse uh, uh, metropolitan area, there's only seven churches that are considered multi-ethnic. Okay? And... W- this little Bethel Christian Fellowship is one of them. I mean, that, that just doesn't happen. I mean, there, there, there are, st- in most churches in the country, that's, that old statement that Sunday morning is the most segregated hour of the week is still true. And, that, I mean, that, and, and yet here at, at Bethel Christian Fellowship, the Lord is bringing different ethnic groups together. This is a, this is a multi-generational church. Do you know how many churches, you know, they, they sort of have a target audience and they just focus on, you know, the 20-somethings, or they just focus on the baby boomers, or they just focus on retired people, and, and that, that's all they do. This, this church wants to look like the body of Christ, the real body of Christ, where we've got all ages, all generations, and, and it actually happens here. I mean, it, oh, I just, the list could go on, and I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make this list quite this long, but... <laughs> um, the generosity at this church. I'm going to tell you this story. I don't, I don't know. I don't think many people know this. I think it's okay to tell the story. There, there's a church, a kind of struggling church, just up the road from us. I'm not going to say which one, but they had to, uh, last winter, they had to turn off the lights, they had to turn off the power. Um, their senior pastor had been asking their denomination for quite a while for some more funds to help with the building. Um, and... Our church blessed them with a huge chunk of money and they were able to turn back their, on their lights, have power again in their sanctuary, have heat again in their sanctuary. And their denomination was so embarrassed that this church from a totally different denomination helped them out that they started, uh, they, they, they suddenly stepped up to the plate and started, started helping out. I mean, it, that's just un- that just doesn't happen. Um, you guys are senior staff. I'm going to be very embarrassed, Pastor Carl. Um, uh, she's going to be mad at me later. I'm going I'm to face her wrath a little bit. But I, since, since I've been on staff part-time, I, I've gotten a, a deeper glimpse into what our... I always knew they were very generous, self-sacrificing people. And I'm not going to tell details that will really embarrass Pastor Carol. You have no idea how self-sacrificing, how unusually self-sacrificing our senior staff is. It is really remarkable. And, and they, they deserve, they, and, and Pastor Carol will be the very last one, so I'm going to face her ass, she's giving me her look. Uh, um, they, they, they deserve our honor um, for the ways they have, they have sacrificed on our behalf. You guys are missionaries. No church our size has as many missionaries as we do. As many missionaries who 
I mean, all over the world, they are spreading God's word. And huh, you wouldn't even believe that we've had a couple missionaries in the last couple years switch over to Bethel Christian Fellowship to be their sending church. And the reason is because they, they said, before we were their official sending church, they said things like, you know, you're not even our sending church and you're supporting us more, not just financially, but with, with prayer and, and connections and support and, and emotional support. You're supporting us more than, um, than our own sending church. I mean, that, that's, that's amazing. I, I really could go on and I really... I'm, okay, I'm going to stop because the list really could go on and on. When was the last time, though, you listed out the way that the Lord has showered this church with favor? the way he has showered you personally and your family with favor. So, really long sermon. Now you're ready for Pastor Jim next week. Because it'll seem like nothing. So, in, in conclusion, be awake, be wise, be filled, be thankful. I want to let this question haunt you. Have you seen God's opportunity in 2009? Have you seen it? Have you seen it? Have you seized it? And are you ready to see God's work in 2010?